Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is author Paul Cantor, who wrote the book Most Dope, The Extraordinary Life of Mac Miller. Welcome, Paul. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Really good to be here. Well, congratulations on the book. You know, Mac Miller is not someone I knew a lot about. I knew him mostly through my kids who listened to him. But tell our listeners your background and how you became aware of Mac Miller and his music. Well, back in 2009, I was sitting in my apartment at the time where I lived in Staten Island. And I was just sitting on my computer, kind of like what I would be doing right now <laughs> if we weren't um, you know, doing this interview. And uh, a publicist, that worked at a label called Rostrum Records, which I had some early experience covering an artist of theirs named Wiz Khalifa. He sent me um, a video and he said, you know, check this out. This is a kid that we're thinking about working with. Let me know what you think. And so I watched the video. It was Mac, you know, just rapping into a camera. And I just remember being kind of impressed with it in the way that, you know, one sees a lot of these types of videos, things come across your desk, you can kind of tell it within 30 seconds, a minute, you know, whether there's something there. There was something unique about what he was doing in the video, like his mannerisms and this charisma. It's kind of like an X Factor type thing that you just see in certain artists that goes beyond whether a person is technically talented or not. You know, as you, you probably know, some of the greatest musicians like play instruments in weird ways, right? They don't, you know, necessarily have the the, the technical proficiency, right? But they there's something about what they're doing that, you know, makes them, you know, unique. I think that was something I could tell really early on, just in that 30 seconds to a minute or however long I looked at that video, that he had that thing. That probably happens, you know, once out of every, you know, 50 things you see. I told uh, the guy that sent me the music, his name was Artie, and I write about him a lot in the book. Um, I told Artie, I think you should work with this kid. You know, sounds like a good artist. He was sending me a lot of music at that time, you know, for different people. But there was something about this where I was like, okay, this might, you know, have a little zip to it. <laughs> but they, they kind of took the ball and sort of ran with it, right? And so I was kind of in that, that orbit, um, and I was uh, close with the guys from Rostrum Records. And that's kind of what ended up bringing, you know, the book to life was, um, you know, some of those relationships. You know, early on, you write that Mac was not embarrassed or too cool to say he wanted to be great. He did want to be great and he saw greatness in other people. And that concept really tracks throughout the entire book and into Mac's life, obviously. Yeah, well, I think that was a kind of a, a, a unique thing and somewhat generational. I just turned 40 and Mac was um, 26 when he passed, right? So I started working on this about almost four years ago. Now I am on the older end of like being a millennial, <laughs> mm -hmm. but I have just enough of that like Gen X disposition to know that it's a little odd when somebody like puts a lot of energy into 
really wanting to be good, right? A lot of people want to be like really cool and pretend like they're not trying very hard. And yeah, I'm like, I'm smoking my cigarette and who gives a fuck? You know, like I'm a, you know, I'm a rapper. I don't, that's like a trope in, in hip hop. Like, you know, I'm not a rapper. I'm just a hustler who raps, you know, like this was a dude who like legitimately wanted to be a great rapper. I think that was, like I said, very generational, right? I think that's why he connected with a lot of people at the age that he did, because even his younger listeners were kind of like caught up in that thing of like wanting to do something, you know, and wanting to be good at something, maybe not always being good at something because, you know, failure is sort of endemic to the human experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, which I think he encapsulated too in his, you know, in his career and some of the things that he went through. I do think that was somewhat unique to him and his generation. And that's why I wanted to make a point of actually acknowledging that, you know, really up front. Yeah, I mean, you see that in a lot of narratives about musicians, you know, this sort of um, almost a reluctance or, you know, a little bit of a too cool for school type thing. But in the truly great ones, you know, you, you do have, you know, I think you do see this uh, desire to sort of master your craft. And, you know, there was a goofiness, too, that everybody talks about in the book that was very appealing. And, you know, you mentioned he was 26 when he died. He was so young when he started. And this was a time that anyone with a computer in their bedroom could make a mixtape. The goofiness, just to touch on that for a second, I think, you know, not enough people give him credit for uh, this. I mean, he, he's a half Jewish guy, right? You know, and a lot of times when I would see him do stuff... And even when I would watch his interviews, he he has like a lot of Jewish humor, you know, which is like this sort of self-deprecating kind of like not taking yourself too seriously, almost neurotic like thing that um, I think, you know, <laughs> people of a certain stripe could identify with. I think that was um, definitely one of his charms. Now, as far as the mixtapes, right now, you can pretty much make a song and get it online pretty quickly. I, you don't really need to go through too much of a chain of command. And he was kind of in that milieu, but it wasn't quite as open as it is now. There were still gatekeepers and there were still like arbiters of culture, whether those were magazines or blogs and people who quote unquote make taste that I think that he tried to engage with to get his music out there, right? Because he was kind of doing the same thing everybody else was doing at one time, which was just kind of uploading music and hoping somebody would discover it. And some of it was being discovered. So that was also part of it. He was like, he was amassing fans, but he really needed something to kind of take him to the next level. And that's how he wound up getting with the record label, Rostrum, who had a lot of goodwill and a lot of um, energy. I often think of like the start of a person's career as almost like a rocket ship. And when a rocket takes off, there's all this alchemy going on below the rocket, chemistry and, you know, things exploding. And you don't even know what those things are. It's unexplainable how you get from point A to point B, because the chemistry, the things that are going on when that rocket is taken off, don't make any sense, right? You're just all over the place. And you're just like trying to like figure it out. There isn't like a sequence of events. There's like a thousand events going on at once. And there's a million different relationships and there's a million different people. But with the internet stuff, it was kind of like open season, right? It was hard to tell what exactly was going on, right? It was like mixtapes in a group, he's freestyling, he's making YouTube videos, got 
blogs, it's like all these different things going on, right? And what really is in that is ambition and desire and energy. It's interesting because the internet played a huge part, you know, mixtapes and Ustream. I don't know what Ustream is. I've never heard of that. But what's so fascinating is that Mac was into all of that stuff. And at that point in time, it's not today, but still it was happening in real time. It wasn't like your traditional artist schedule, you know, release a record and, you know, three months from now, it was all happening in real time. And he's trying everything. Well, I think one thing he seized upon early and he wasn't like completely unique in this, right? Um, he was just among a lot of artists who were kind of hip to what was going on at that time, which was attention. The music industry was broken back then. The model was kind of moving away from like putting out records. And the model was moving more towards touring and merchandise. And I think he kind of understood that early on because he was with an indie label. And he knew like if you could keep people's attention you could do something with yourself. Social media, for example, I don't think he needed to be coerced into doing that. I mean, I think he was just right. genuinely a guy who was using social media. He was using Twitter because he thought it was fun, like most people you know, were at that time. Any tool that in which he could express himself, he would use. With Ustream, for example, that was a precursor, like what it would, you would have like Instagram Live now, um, where you can just kind of go on there and just talk to people. He utilized it, right, just to say, hey, I'm doing this thing right now. I'm going to be here in three hours, <laughs> you know, and like just talking directly to the fans. And that, I think, was really important because it made the fans feel that they were connected to him, like you said, in real time. Right. All right. Tell us about Pittsburgh and the rap scene as Mac makes his way up. It was not a big scene, right? I don't think it was big. There was a scene of sorts. But it was kind of undeveloped. There wasn't really um, like a breakout star. Wiz Khalifa kind of was positioned as this person who would have like national attention. And I think when he got his first deal at Warner Brothers, that was a sign to the town that a local artist had like kind of made it right. When you're in a small town, anytime you do anything, right, it's a, you know, it's a big deal, right? Because most people's lives are fairly miniature, <laughs> you know, for lack of a better term, right? They're kind of localized, right? I mean, so, I mean, I think it had a scene, it was, it was sort of developing. And I think, you know, like I said, Rostrum was, was kind of this label that was laying a foundation for taking an artist out of that scene and gaining exposure that part of Pennsylvania is like, it feels like the Midwest or something. It's so like out there, you know, um, when you're there, I mean, you're, you're only a couple hours from like um, Ohio and it really you know, starts to feel very um, remote, <laughs> you know, and it, they were kind of like living in New York, right? And they had experience with the labels and they were in touch with the bigger hip hop scene, you know, whether those were other artists in the community or other producers. And those are things that kind of trigger back to the people in the local city. Say, oh, Max working with this one. Oh, Wiz is working with this one. Oh, he's on a song with this one. That helps you separate yourself. Well, it's interesting too, because, you know, you mentioned Rostrum, but there was also ID Labs, which was a local recording studio where, you know, it seems like he had full-time access. So he could, you know, experiment on the internet and then go in and cut it and, and you know, really uh, proceed at his own pace. Right. And that was important because, you know, really having a place to kind of 
go in and work is and was like, you know, very crucial for him. And he did try out a few different places. I mean, that wasn't the only place that he recorded. We talk a little bit in the book about um, that place, uh, Tough Sound. There was a few other places. There was one, I think, called Yamama's House, which was like an upstairs studio that he tried out. There was a few areas like, but even in that scene, right, it wasn't like there was a lot of places to go. You know, some of these places were less efficient than others. And maybe they weren't you know, as um, developed, but he had a good chemistry with the producer, Big Germ. And the chemistry is important because the connection between an artist and their engineer, it's kind of the thing that helps the artists get their ideas out. And, you know, when you're in a creative zone, you need that workflow is really important, particularly when you're kind of writing the way he was writing at that point in time, which was like moving very quickly. You know, you need a person who literally like is sitting there at the computer in their Pro Tools and can move very fast. Like, oh, I want to delete that. Let's go back. You know, let's do that again. Okay, I'm going to double this. By that, you can, you know, you all of a sudden you did a song in, say, an hour, you know, two hours. You do that for a week, you have a mixtape. You have a mixtape. Now you have something to give your fans who are you're engaging with, you know, sort of in real time who want material. It becomes this this almost like a, you know, a machine, you know what I'm saying? Um, and it's a creative machine and it keeps you as an artist kind of continuously creating, you know, in your head, you're like, I'm ready to go, you know, and that becomes a little compulsive, right? It's this ability to just kind of think a thing and get it out almost immediately. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Paul Cantor, who's the author of Most Dope, The Extraordinary Life of Mac Miller. Uh, let's talk a little bit about his music. As I mentioned, you know, I didn't really know too much about him coming in. So, you know, I definitely did a deep dive in, in reading your book, and it's a pretty fascinating body of work, I guess. Uh, the High Life mixtape, that kind of kicked it off? I think that might have been his third mixtape. Uh, he had one that was um, 
under the name Easy Mac, and then he had one called uh, The Jukebox, Prelude to Class Clown, and then he had The High Life, and before that, he had a mixtape with a rapper named Beatty, uh, who's uh, still rapping, and that mixtape was called How High, and you do see a lot of development in just those early couple of mixtapes. The High Life was, um, you know, I think one that got him a lot of attention, you know, online. And that has a lot of the songs that early on, I think, really got people to pay attention to him. One of them, which I talk about in the book, is that he shot a video for was Live Free. That had a very jazzy vibe. They came up to New York. They shot that sort of just walking around the city. They came out of like, I think, Penn Station or Grand Central. I think it was Penn Station. And they kind of walk down and then oh like east to Chinatown and they're just with a camera you know and they're just bumping into people on the street some people who like recognized them and stuff from the internet from like blogs and Ustream and I think it was a very innocent time he also has the uh song with Wiz Khalifa Cruise Control that was um I think they only have two collaborations that's a good one on there. Um, he has that Just My Imagination song, which I talk about in the book, which was like a little bit of a riff on the Temptations record. And, you know, in terms of sampling, you know, sampling that could be perceived as almost like sacrilegious, right? Just because of the how iconic the song is and also how difficult it is to sample that song. Um, it's just the instrumentation and turning it into something is, is somewhat challenging. Um, and then it becomes this, this sort of fantasy record for him. That mixtape, it has a lot of um, ambition in it. It's less about what's like specifically being said on it and more about like an energy and just something that you could feel when you hear it. This is like something moving in one direction. Everything was kind of moving there. And you could kind of tell like, again, that X factor was present. And Kids, I think that was just maybe his first legitimate LP release. But that, that was a record, he did a lot of thinking and conceptualizing on what that should be, and it specifically aimed at his age group. Kids did, did get officially released. That was like, I think if, you know, his fan base is kind of an interesting fan base, right? Because there's some people like, you know, maybe yourself, right, who are kind of coming to it new because of things like, you know, book. And they kind of... Some people were really dialed into like something like the high life. They know they almost see that as like a, like a, his first thing. Some people see that stuff with the ill spoken and the how high mixtape as his first. To me, I felt like kids represented his, you know his first real effort. You know, he had a label that was supporting it, right? It wasn't like just him and his friends kind of putting it out online and hoping people paid right. attention to it. There was a press release around it. He came to New York. He did press for it. When you're doing press and you're talking to people, you're asking people to document something, right? You're saying, you know, I'm going to talk about this thing that there's to be some sort of record for what I'm about to promote, <laughs> right? With the high life and stuff like that, if that doesn't catch on, it doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying? Right. With kids, it's like, I'm putting some real effort into this. And if it doesn't connect, you know, it's it's in there as have not, having not connected. The other things are more like trial and error. <laughs> yeah. Right. And a different audience, I think, mixtapes and, you know, official air quotes, CDs or LPs. I, I mean, that 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 was definitely a mixtape, right? Um, in the sense that um, I don't think it was being sold back then. Uh, um, he, you know, he did have some issues um, with that. You know, he ended up getting sued 
by uh, the rapper Lord Finesse over a song that he that he had done. So there were there were a lot of like question marks. It's very gray area. Like, are things being sold? Are they not being sold? You know, it's a little hard to you know track what you know what's going on. And I think the argument with the lawsuit was that he was getting you know paid to perform and he was doing the song you know when he was performing. So it was less about like selling the song and it was more about profiting off of something that was a work that the person thought was theirs because freestyles are kind of like a cover version right, right of right. something and it's like a, a blues musician saying hey it did a cover of my song and i, I you know i want to get paid for that then it becomes this sort of rabbit hole that people crawl down trying to see who owns what did you clear the sample blah 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 mm-hmm. blah blah mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it was stressful you know i mean he got sued for 10 million dollars so you know if you're 19 years old that's going to stress you out right you write that his next album, Blue Slide Park, was paved with good intentions. Can you explain that? That album was his debut album. When you look at his discography, that's technically his debut. I think it was a well-intended project. He didn't really have any features on it. He had a number one album carrying it by himself. Features and people being on your songs is very common. You know, it's more uncommon to not have people on your album. That was an album that, you know, he primarily had worked with the people he'd, you know, he'd come in with, people from ID Labs and a couple of other producers. Uh, Ritz Reynolds was one of them, uh, who, you know, who's interviewed in the book. But he kind of had a very tight-knit unit, and he was very, like, self-contained in terms of what he was doing. He positioned that record as very much a representation of, like, home, and that's a theme that kind of runs through that home was very important you know what I'm saying and it was almost like a place he was trying to get back to whether it was in music or otherwise so when I say it was paved with good intentions I I, I feel like home is a thing everybody can relate to you know what I mean unless your home is not a happy one but even that you can relate to in, in its unhappiness right for him home was a a place with a lot of um, good memories Blue Slide Park was a you know, a place ultimately that, you know, he looked upon fondly, right? Then, um, you know, it it kind of was not received for what it was intended, you know, to be, right? Um, These things that maybe you could kind of commend him for, which were carrying a record on your own and working with this this crew of tight-knit people and being very, like, self-sufficient and having a number one album on top of that. I think those were things to sort of cheerlead, but the perception may have been that it was a little like too backward looking for somebody who was only, like I said, about 19 or 20 at the time. So it did debut number one on the Billboard charts, if I'm not mistaken. And as you kind of mentioned, the press savaged it and particularly Pitchfork, which you write, it not only rejected Mac's music, but the very idea of Malcolm himself. Now, you know, he had experimented as a young kid, like most people at this day and age with some illegal substances but these reviews really got him down. You know, did it lead to heavier drug use? I mean, tell us about lean. That's that's some dangerous shit. Yeah, uh, I don't think that the review specifically. I, I know that was that became kind of the narrative. Hmm. There was a a sort of well known complex magazine article on him that indicated that the review was something that contributed to him becoming addicted to lean. One of the things that I attempted to do in my book was dispel that. The writer of that piece is interviewed in my book. 
I think he talks about that specifically. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I didn't quote him exactly, I know he did tell me that, right? I mean, the truth was he was somebody who was experimenting with drugs from a pretty early age. And I think that that kind of became the narrative, like, oh, I got this bad review. I became addicted to lean. Mm. It was really a series of things, kind of somewhat similar to the rocket ship taking off, you know, when a career is starting. It's the same thing, you know, um, with that, right? It's not like, you know, you have one event and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I got to start drinking. It was kind of already happening but it became a little more pronounced. There's one incident, you know, that I do talk about in the book where it's on the eve of the album being released where Benji, who ran Rostrum, sees him with the lean in his car. And he says, don't ever bring that shit in my car again or something like like that, right? (laughs) So it's not like he gets this bad review and he's like, go get me the lean, right? He's already kind of doing it. And it was already... A little bit of an issue for him. Lean was at that time, you know, really, really popular. It still is. And I think that they, you try to get lean even off the market for a while because Justin Bieber, you know, ended up getting famously sort of addicted to it. And then uh, activists, which, you know, made lean, uh, took it off the market, right? Um, uh, now there's other brands and stuff like that. But, you know, how drugs are and stuff in the music scene it's very insidery right Right, it's like you know you know a guy who knows a guy who can get it at a show and then like your people around you like you know they kind of set it up so you guys can have fun on the road right and it was a kind of a recreational thing you know when I was writing the book I try to be very careful to not make it more than it was but not make it less of, of what it was either. You know what I'm saying? Because it, it obviously had disastrous effects. I mean, Pimp C, who was a very popular rapper when he was alive, he passed away from lean. Lil Wayne was having seizures from lean. Rick Ross was having seizures from lean. So it's a thing that does kill people. It was sort of being treated as, as this recreational thing. I say all that to say it, it is a serious drug. And I tried to just be careful with, you know, just showing what that actually was. As opposed to just saying, hey, I got this review and I started drinking the lean. It was kind of already happening. There was a lot going on there, you know, but that's what a book is good for, right? It allows you a lot of space to kind of give you that nuance, you yeah. know? Yeah, fair enough. And there is some experimentation. And, and for our listeners who don't know, it's a, a codeine-based cough syrup, I believe, and was on the market for a while, as you mentioned, but um, highly, highly addictive. Um, so, Macadelic great title, came next. And it was 180 degrees from Blue Slide Park. And in fact, you know, one of the things I noticed in digging into his catalog is, you know, how different each of the records that followed were. There's definitely artistic growth. And you mentioned that he was always kind of moving on. You know, what what about that record? Is that is that one people should check out? Yeah, I think that's one of his best ones, actually. Uh, it's one of my favorites, for sure. Even the title, right? Uh, Macadelic is somewhat similar. What do we think of when we hear the Delic, right? We think of the Funkadelic, right? Um, or Psychedelic. Or, or Psychedelic, And it yeah. might have both uh, uh, features in there, too. Yeah. And to me, it's like a, with that title, it's kind of like, it's saying like, this is my own brand of something. This isn't like some other, you know, version. This is like, when you dial into me, you're getting the Mac the macadelic you know what i mean like this is the dope here and that one you start seeing a little bit more of this 
chip on his shoulder, much less of this wide-eyed enthusiasm, more of like, I'm starting to have some doubts about what I'm doing and where I'm going and what the purpose of this is. There's also a lot of references to illicit substances. There was a lot more references to like weed and things like that. And the action in the lyrics themselves, in the earlier music, there's a lot more action type of like lines where I'm doing something. On Macadelic, you start seeing more of like just references to different things. And the way they're kind of talked about is almost like stream of consciousness where you don't even know exactly why he's saying it, right? It's just like kind of a a reference to mushrooms or this or that. It's just starting to kind of get dropped in there. It kind of is more of like the way a person wears a certain brand of clothing, right? To signal to somebody that, you know, yeah, I'm a Chanel girl or I'm a, you know, a, I'm a Tommy Hilfiger guy, right? It's like when you drop these little references in, you're sending a message to the audience, like I'm a drug guy, right? Mm. I'm into this, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And so that kind of starts to become a little bit more of the disposition. And then he, he was also open a lot on social media about that stuff. He was talking openly about it. I mean, he has like tweets and stuff where he's literally saying, I'm like, I'm doing cocaine right now or something, you know, a sort of radical honesty, right? That for his generation, you might do to show off, right? And get attention, right? Um, It's a way of kind of getting clout, you know? Oh, Max doing, he's doing cocaine. That's so cool. You know what I mean? Um, that, That kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, amidst uh, the kind of a growing drug use or different drugs, I should say, you know, he heads to L.A. He has an MTV show, a reality show, TV appearances. It's just a whole nother level. L.A., probably not a great fit, but there was a mixtape called Delusional Thomas, and that was dark. Uh, Faces was called his Coke album by some of his friends, and uh, it got to the point where his friends were starting to get worried about him. But he did not go to rehab and instead went to Rick Rubin's house. And that had a huge impact on him. Historically, right, Rick is seen as sort of a spiritual uh, leader or kind of a, a guru of sorts. He did start spending a lot of time at Rick's house, just socially. I think he ID'd that Rick had some habits or or ways that he could kind of combat some of um, Max, you know, negative impulses they started doing things that were just i think recreational like the ice baths meditation there's probably some debate to be had about whether that was all a bunch of bs i mean i write about it in the book right just to acknowledge what it was i don't necessarily know if it worked right because he did have to go or he did wind up going to rehab you know what i mean at a certain point so Maybe that was sort of delaying things. I think there's a thing that happens, you know, when people are struggling with something where they try to find every way to deal with the problem except deal with the problem. (laughs) You know what I mean? Sometimes, you know, people are reluctant to really, you know, acknowledge something. I think that was a sort of temporary stopgap. Rick was doing something that was like kind of a holistic, natural approach to getting healthy. It helped him for a bit. It definitely got him on the right trajectory, you know, for at least, you know, a year or so, which doesn't sound like a long time in the grand scheme of things. But when you think about how short his life was, it's like a year is like kind of massive. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, he did a complete tour sober uh, after that and slipped back into more drinking than drugs and a horrific car accident. 
And, you know, we know how this story ends and I don't want to spend too much time on that, but you know, there's some records watching movies with the sound off, which is a great title, a good AM and swimming that really showed, you know, his kind of musical, you know, maturation and exploratory part. What do you think Mac Miller's musical legacy is all the personal stuff aside? Um, His musical legacy, I think is, I would put him up there like as a, as a songwriter, you know, there's that, <laughs> that great Hemingway quote, which is, you know, it's easy to write. You just open up a vein and bleed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think like he is almost a literal representation of that. He has a few different periods of his career, like you said, where the, the music changes a lot. Some of his music is very, seems like almost like a diary um, where things are kind of just really almost manifestations of what might even be right in front of him. Like, you know, he has that song, um, happy birthday, you know, which is about the birthday party, um, happening upstairs and like what his responses to it, even that title faces, I think even he acknowledged it was, it was something that came to him off of like a, maybe a cocaine trip or something like that. My interpretation of it is more that it's about the faces that you make for other people, you know, just to sort of get through a day when you really don't want to be getting through it or the faces that are being made to you. I don't know. It's like the temptation song, right? Smiling faces. Sometimes they don't tell the truth. That's a, you know, a very deep philosophical concept. And to find a way to kind of put it in song is is, is challenging, right? Who does narcissist see when he looks in the in the lake, right? He sees himself, right. right? He sees the face, you know? So there's a lot going on there in his music um, in that period. Then the music starts getting a little more vague as he gets into Divine Feminine and um, his final album, Swimming, where the subject becomes so up for interpretation. It's less about him. Even though it's still about him, it's more about like, whatever you're interpreting, it's almost like making a, a painting. You know, nobody knows who the Mo- who Mona Lisa is. I mean, there's theories, but if you knew who she was, I mean, you maybe you'd stop looking at it, right? There, there's a lot of power in that vagueness. So I think his musical legacy is one of, you know, a lot of growth. It, depending on how you look at it, his early music could be seen as almost, you know, comical, right? Um, I don't view it that way. You know, I view it um, in a different way because I can see the charms and the the good qualities in that, you know, even Blue Slide Park, which, you know, got these not so great reviews. I think it's a good album. You know what I mean? Like I remember listening to it and liking it. Right. And I, again, I'm an older, I'm older than him by 10 years. Right. But I could still appreciate it for what it was, which is what I try to do with all artists. I just know that the person is expressing something from inside them and that represents that moment in time. We've been speaking with Paul Cantor, the author of Most Dope, The Extraordinary Life of Mac Miller. I know there was some controversy about your book with Miller's family. Is there anything that you want to say about that? Because personally, not knowing too much about him, I thought it was an exceptional book, deep and fair. Yeah, I mean, I just hope that um, I always, you know, wanted them to support it. Um, I would hope that uh, one day, if maybe that's tomorrow, maybe that's 50 years from now, (laughs) um, that they pick it up and see, you know, what the intention was. I think it was Michelangelo, right, who said, um, I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. And that was kind of how I saw him. He was just an angel in the marble and I was just trying to show people what it was. 
there was a little bit of a tabloid version of who Mac was that kind of was revealed later in his life because of whatever was going on and how he passed. And um, and I think people latched on to that. I, I just wanted to kind of capture what that was, what 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 the journey was really like, you know, and get a little deeper than that tabloid version. Yeah, I mean, it was an unfortunate situation. It was difficult and sad, I think, for everyone involved. And um, but the book has been well received, and you know, hopefully, you know what I'm saying. Like, uh, it's not the first; it won't be the last of these types of things. You know what I mean? Because you hate to see what occurred around this happen to other people. It was a really good book, and I really enjoyed it. So thank you, and thank you for joining us, Paul. Uh, thank you so much for having me. This was uh, such a great conversation. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive podcasts there as well, and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.